0: You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Hello there and welcome to a second helping show of The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. This is a chance to hear interviews aired on previous Best Possible Taste shows and we have Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants talking about sparkling wine. We have a three Michelin star chef, Claire Smith, who describes her journey to becoming chef patron of restaurant Gordon Ramsay. We'll enjoy an insight into Pavlova with Palace Foods, bakery and pastry specialist Sheldon Chaplin and food journalist Dee Laffin reminds us about the implications of food waste. If you'd like to get in touch with me at the best possible taste, please drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at queenoforg as in queen of organisation. Let's start off now with sparkling wine with Ron Forrestal.
1: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
0: Delicious. Mmm. Ron, you're welcome to the studio. Valentine's is just over but you've brought some nice sparkles in for us tonight and I'm not talking about the ring variety
1: (laughs) absolutely thanks Sharon I thought it was worth uh, maybe people had either sparkling at the weekend champagne or now have a couple of bottles of it somewhere so I thought we might discuss it just to uh, give people an idea what's out there a little explanation on on each um, style if you like
0: okay and you have three different very different looking bottles there
1: yes well sparkling wine um is uh, available from all over the world. It comes from um, probably 10, 12 countries producing sparkling wine. Champagne is different, obviously, for the reason that it's it's, uh, confined to the Champagne area of France. It has to be produced within the borders of Champagne to qualify as Champagne. Uh, that doesn't really uh, the the sparkling in the rest of the world there's only one other um, uh, one other sector is the same which is Prosecco has to be produced in the Prosecco area as well
0: So is Prosecco actually a region in Italy?
1: It's a region yeah it's actually a town uh, and then the uh, the extended region around it it's quite a big region now Um, uh, it's a layer of grape they use to make Prosecco but there's there's a whole lot of sparkling wine available from Italy outside of that area and I actually have one of them here Um, which is not called Prosecco. Okay. But exactly the same process, um, doesn't command the same prices as Prosecco does.
0: This bottle of Prosecco that you have here, tell us about it.
1: So there's two basic styles of Prosecco then. You'll have a frizzante. If you look at the label, it'll have it written on it. Uh, um, That means that it's a semi-sparkling and it has a lower sparkling. It tends to have a little cork in it or a screw cap.
0: I was going to say, it yeah. would often have the screw.
1: Yeah, a screw cap. Generally, uh, sometimes a cork with a little string over the top, uh, which is a spago, that's the name for that kind of corkage. The string goes over just to protect the cork from being blown out. And it has no foil on the top, that's that's very specific on that, on, on the ruling first. You can't have any foil over it. Then the next level up from that is uh, spumante. Now, all all producers of Prosecco would have both. They'd produce both. Spamante is the actual champagne process, exactly the same process as champagne which is a bottle fermentation it means they add yeast to a bottle tilt it on its head uh, leave it for probably about three to four weeks and it generates its own carbonation inside the bottle.
0: You're bringing back memories of my 18th birthday there when <laughs> dad would have sprung for a few bottles of Asti Spumante. A oh, nice
1: one yeah. yeah again that's another Italian sparkling product yeah absolutely now the, the Spumante um, is, is a, st- a style of Prosecco this one I have here is a Vignal uh, Spumante Prosecco usually lot in restaurants these are for pouring glasses of prosecco it's it's pricey enough though they're going to cost like 18.50 a bottle whereas the screw cap or the other cork version tends to cost about 11 euros a bottle okay. mainly because the duty is much higher uh, from the government it's double from the irish government it's 6.40 a bottle duty on that alone that's without VAT now that's just duty um, and the process is much more expensive. So it means that the buying the product is more expensive.
0: And often when you go on holiday to places like Italy or France you see mm. these products and they're so much cheaper.
1: So much cheaper, yeah. Now now champagne doesn't tend to be an awful lot cheaper. Like if you think of if you go into any of those supermarkets at the ports in France, for example, you'll find a champagne that will be cheaper. But if you look for any of the branded ones, like Moet, Clico, Mum any of those, there won't be a huge gap in pricing uh, they tend to control the price fairly well all over the world so it's not that much cheaper but yeah it's champagne, listen champagne is fantastic um, it's very pricey like I have a, a, two different champagne houses on the list one um, called Gosse um, it's costing about 48 euros a bottle and then Henry Gutar, which is a more house pouring champagne costing about 36 euros a bottle
0: and that's that's when you buy it from you and you're having yeah. it at home so if you see it in a restaurant it's going to be substantially
1: more It is, yeah, you know, restaurants tend to charge, you know, and I see their justification for it they, they tend to charge anywhere from 60 euros up um, for champagne um, and Prosecco tends to be around the 30 to 35 bracket but uh, prosecco is is a kind of different product. It's a it's a different grape variety. Champagne is using Chardonnay and Pinot Noir normally uh, as grapes, whereas the Greer grape used in Italy is a much more fruity one. It's it's much fruity. It's not near as dry as as um, as Champagne can be.
0: Okay and you've a pinky peachy looking one there. yeah
1: this is from uh, this is from just a different region, region uh, down south in in italy it's called rose glamour now it's a very flashy product and it has this spago cork which has a little string on the top a uh, great value cost around 10 euros a bottle that's lovely it's really nice Gets 10 euros a
0: fanta- is great value
1: i'm talking about the, the actual wine Okay, uh, but ten euros is very good value. Yeah, it yeah, use, yeah, yeah. yeah It's very good value yeah. for this kind of thing. So, but the um, but the actual the the wine there is it's really nice. It's a great drink.
0: Is that wine in that, or is that sparkling? It's sparkling yeah, wine. It's sparkling. Okay.
1: Uh, now the only thing is that with those screw caps or those those other cart ones, um, like the full the Spumante one has a pop off champagne cork. These don't. You just need a wine opener to open it or a screw cap. The bubble tends to die a bit quicker, so you got to use them. Faster, just mm-hmm. you need to pour them and use them really. Okay, uh, and there's no point putting them into a fridge with a teaspoon in them or anything, it's not going to save them, so okay. they're going to die out within an hour or two. Uh, and then, what I brought just to, to show you that, and I think these are a lovely idea for people who like Prosecco, um, is a, a sniper of Prosecco uh, from La Marsa, which is a really good producer of Prosecco. I do the full bottle versions of this as well. But This is a 200 ml, which basically you get about two champagne glasses out of because champagne glasses are smaller than a wine glass. Um and they're lovely. They're single serve so which means that you know you've, they're perfect every time you open them and pour them and they fit in the fridge. Now they cost around 5 euros a bottle but I think they're worth it just uh, for that.
0: Yeah, well certainly if you're in a family where there's only maybe one of you drinking yeah, it. Absolutely. It's nice to have.
1: It is, yeah. Or if you just like during the summer if you like you know if you're going off down to Ballybunion or somewhere and you want to have like you get a case of twenty-four of them, just to keep a half a dozen in the fridge. It's a lovely thing to give to somebody.
0: I can also see those in the back of wedding cars with straws in them. Yeah, absolutely. No <laughs> spill <laughs> in the bridesmaids then.
1: Yeah, they're perfect. But it's just it's a very nice prosecco and it's it's really worth trying. It's what's in those bottles is really good. Um, with the straw, of course, it goes straight to your head
0: drinking it with the straw.
1: Yeah, that was very fashionable for in 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 London about seven or eight years ago. They started drinking Snipes champagne, which were ferociously expensive. Uh, with straws um, I've never seen a catch on here too much now but you never know
0: and what percentage alcohol are each of those?
1: this is around 11% so it's quite modest yeah they tend to be about yeah 11 and uh, slightly 11 as well so they're all the same
0: ok great well if anybody is in trouble from the weekend to didn't do what they were meant to do <laughs> for Valentine's they should get on to your forestall.ie and get a case or two or a bottle of dew
1: there uh, it's just worth trying you know for that maybe something you've know, some party coming up I think per or a sparkling, or I have a couple of an Argentinian product Well, called Pascal Tosso It's lovely. France, do a Cremant de Loire from the Loire Valley. Again, it's sparkling, and they're a lovely um, kick off to a to an evening. You know, you don't need a bottle. A bottle will serve seven or eight people. It's just a lovely start for people who are arriving for anything in particular.
0: I couldn't agree more. And yep. thanks so much for bringing those in and talking about them this evening. And don't we bother. will see you again next month. Super. Thanks, Sharon. Cheers. Chin Chin.
2: Salut. Schleiter.
0: From sparkling wine now to the glittering culinary career of chef Claire Smith, which has culminated with three Michelin stars. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Claire, you're very welcome to the programme this evening. Oh, thank you for having me. And I want to start by asking you to tell us a bit about your journey to being the chef patron at restaurant Gordon Ramsay. Start, and let's start with your roots in Bushmills, County Antrim.
3: Well, yeah, I mean, that's going back some time now. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I grew up on a farm um, and kind of started cooking in, in my school holidays and weekends and kind of fell into it and really got a love for it. Um, People were telling me that I was going to become a chef before I knew it. Um, But then I just started reading books and and met some chefs who had worked in Michelin-starred restaurants. And then that really kind of inspired me um, to go on and, and really do it at the top level.
0: I think some people decide, yeah, they want to be a chef or they want to do something in the culinary world, but they maybe don't have a plan as such as to where they they want to go. Were you always very ambitious whenever you decided that this was the, the path that, that you wanted to go down?
3: Yeah, um, I was incredibly ambitious and single-minded um, and driven, I think, from a young age. I think that half of that was my youth the fact that I was so young and 16 years old uh coming from a small town I didn't know very much about the world or, or the dangers of the world um and that that kind of maybe I say stupidity <laughs> arrogance of a young person just uh have helped me actually I think because it, I was blind to it and at the age of 16 left home to become a chef
0: and you went over to England to culinary to do culinary arts over in England.
3: Yes, I did. Yeah, um, I had been reading uh, so much about sort of English or being at chefs at that time, and actually the restaurant I was working in at, when I was in Northern Ireland was uh, we used to hire chefs from England um, because it was quite difficult to get chefs of a really high standard in Northern Ireland in those days. There wasn't a huge food scene. So I had my mind set on on moving to England and and doing my my school there.
0: Where was it that you worked in Northern Ireland? Was it the Bushmills Inn or where was it?
3: No, I worked in a a place called um, Hillcrest Country House. It's changed now. It was just down from the Giants Causeway. I also worked in uh, the Bayview Hotel in Port Ballantrae and a place called Sweeney's Wine Bar. So I was working pretty much since the age of 12 on my school holidays, just helping out, washing up waiting tables, making sandwiches. And I kind of just really enjoyed the atmosphere and the the team spirit in the kitchen.
0: I remember Sweeney's well now from those nice hot summers we used to have. Didn't they have a lovely beer garden there overlooking the water? Yeah, Yeah. it was
3: a beautiful place. Yeah, it's
0: lovely. I'm sure it's still, I think it's still there, but but I'm not sure. Do you get home much yourself?
3: Um, I get home normally uh, once or twice a year. I'll be home for Christmas this year. Is that the first time
0: in a long time you've been home for Christmas?
3: It is normally we do a, a three-year rotation. Uh, like my husband's parents, my parents, and then uh, and then we've got one year to ourselves. So this is the, the turn to to be back home in Northern Ireland.
0: Well, you you talk there a lot. You make it sound like you're quite an old person, but you're not. You're not even forty. So you're still relatively young. So I would imagine, are there still lots of things that you want to do, or do you feel having achieved something like? Um, you're the, the first female British chef to hold and retain three Michelin stars, which is a huge accomplishment. Like, what else is there that you would like to accomplish?
3: Um, I think that I I kind of, I, I I don't think that I've achieved at all everything that I ever set out to achieve. I, I think and then recently I was we re- awarded our, our fifth rosette and we have a rosette, AA rosette standards and I've achieved the maximum now and and all of the official UK guides and we're the only restaurant at the moment to do that. And I kind of look at it and I think, Yeah, that's cool, that's nice box ticks, but I feel that, you know, you can ever rest upon your success. You have to keep building upon it. And it it, to me, the next thing is is really to to use that platform and, and do more from it. I've got loads of things to do in my career such as, you know, I haven't written a book yet. Next year I'm planning on opening my own restaurant and really building um, really something solid for myself.
0: You have got a lot of worldwide experience, like you've worked in Australia, you worked with Alan Ducasse in Monaco, you've been in Versailles, California, New York. How important is it to a chef's craft to actually get experience in di- in different parts of the world?
3: I think it's hugely important um, to learn as much as you can, to learn from other great chefs and I think that certainly as a youngster, you, you need to train under like, the masters to become the best, to understand their philosophy, respect for food, and, and their humbleness Humbleness also. Um, team is everything, and food evolves so fast. And, and I think that um, the world of, of food, chefs have a different role today than 10, 15 years ago, the fact that you know, chefs have a real platform and a voice now about more than just cooking food in restaurants um about the environment, sustainability and about social things, economical, um things about working in your community. And I think that's a great thing because we're we're so much more involved in day to day life that we're not just stuck in our own kitchens.
0: And many of the subjects that you've actually mentioned there were discussed at Food in the Age in Galway recently. And you were one of the many chefs that were there and you talked about fair trade in the food trade. What was the message that you wanted to communicate to the audience?
3: Um, I think that sometimes we we are, uh, have blinkers on to what really happened in, in the world of food. And I think that the average person on the street doesn't know where their food really comes from or how it's produced. And I think that's quite dangerous. And and time and time again, we, we, you know, come up against these scandals, whether it might be water meat in the food or milk, you know, prices of milk being less than the production price, all these things that the consumer's not aware of. And and I think that's really important that people know where their food comes from. There's so many issues with with health and also supporting our, our farmers um, in our own country, we've got such strict farming guidelines. And, and to me, that you know, it's, it's a good thing in a way because we know we're protected with what we're eating, but we just import things that we have no idea what they are or where they're from, um, undercut our own farmers. And the whole thing seems ludicrous to me. Um, you go into a shop and, and you can see, buy a chicken sandwich and, and the chicken comes from Thailand. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. And this is sort of um, getting this message out because I think people... Also, I mean, how many percent of the population actually eat in fine dining restaurants? Very few. So I think the average person is a, is a much bigger message about food and what the future of food is.
0: Do you think that that is something that young chefs today are more aware of than they might have been maybe 20 years ago?
3: Yeah, sure. I think definitely. And we we very need to be very connected to our farmers, people shouldn't be shopping or dining in restaurants on on the price point alone what value actually is and also knowing how to for example if you buy a chicken how to to use that chicken how to cook it you know i think years ago what we did know was we we were taught how to cook in schools and we were able to um, be more thrifty uh, with what what we bought but these days that's been lost But I think chefs are kind of reintroducing that back into society again by by saying, you know, hey, buy the better product. No, use it. You know how to cook it. And that's us putting something back again.
0: Food on the Age was a fantastic platform for young chefs to hear older more experienced chefs talk about subjects that are very important and you mentioned there about learning from the best and you yourself you were a mentor for dublin's mark moriarty who won best young chef in the world earlier this year what advice did you give to him whenever you were working with him
3: well mark was uh is an extremely talented and very confident young man so actually i didn't need to do too much with him uh All I could do was advise him on how to prepare for the competition. And he kind of took it all in his stride and had a great attitude um, about the competition where he was there to have a good time. He was cooking something that he really liked and he believed in and and everyone else believed in it. But I was kind of there just as that person to say, you know, about how to be prepared uh, when you turn up to situations to know what you're going to face. I've travelled and done demonstrations and dinners all over the world, so you never know what you're going to turn up to when you turn up to an event. But actually, the whole competition was phenomenally well organised.
0: But Per Mark's ingredients didn't arrive when they were supposed to arrive.
3: <laughs> actually, Mark did it. He did a really good job because he, uh, again, really calm, really controlled. He got he got it. He got it. We, the whole thing was set up where he had to prepare it the day before and his first dish was a little bit salty and he had to prepare, have it ready for 300 people, which was crazy. And it was a little bit salty because it had been there over a day in in marinating. Um, And when we found out the day, I said to Mark, you know, if you're going to win the competition, you've got to do the whole thing again. And he just looked at me and he said, okay. And he just went and he did the whole thing again. Um, And that was just brilliant. And he just walked away with it. It was kind of... uh, it was quite impressive.
0: So he prepared the 300 dishes from scratch again? Yeah. Fair play and to said, him. You
3: know, you've got one opportunity to win this. <laughs> and I said, "And you know, you're going to do it. You have to make sure it's perfect. And he did. And it was, uh, and they just, and very calmly just looked at me and said, yeah, absolutely. I said, have you got the ingredients to do it? And he said, yeah, I can do it. And he just went off and did it.
0: Well, of course, calmness is not something that we would associate with Gordon Ramsay. And Gordon Ramsay approached you and offered you a job. I think it was back in two thousand and two, so you were you were very young then. And we have a, an impression of him from TV and everything that he is highly strong. Were, were you a bit nervous yourself about working with him or working for him?
3: I think you know a lot of chefs are the same. Actually, I think you know his television persona is is for TV. You know, he's not really like that um, all the time. I think everyone has their moments, me included but um I was terrified of him when I when I started cooking obviously because to me you know he was someone I looked up to hugely and I didn't know an awful lot I just hoped that I was doing it right but over the years Gordon has been incredibly generous with me has given me so many opportunities and you know he's a really really fun guy to work with I really enjoy working with him um he's still someone who's got a very young attitude towards life he really is um he likes having a lot of fun He's incredibly, actually, incredibly easy to work for, believe it or not. Because as long as you do the job right and you're good at it, he leaves it alone. He's actually quite easy to please.
0: I'm sure some people now would question that, but it's great <laughs> to hear that from somebody that has worked with him, like in a in a proper environment or a real environment, as opposed to on a TV show, which of course would obviously make a difference to how somebody comes across between editing and whatnot.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, Gordon is uh, he's very straightforward. You know exactly where you stand. And I've worked with. Them for so many years that I know exactly what he wants, but he's not asking for anything um, ridiculous. He's just asking for good food, um, and as long as you can deliver that, then he's the easiest person to get along with.
0: But you are leaving, or you have left. You are going to open your own place.
3: I am. Um, I'm actually still with the Gordon Ramsay Group, on through till probably the middle of next year, um, and. Uh, yeah still working with him and obviously gordon's helping me considerably with um opening my own solo venture so um i'm leaving but i don't think i'm going far
0: (laughs) well this must be something that has been on your your to-do list that you wanted to have your own place maybe with your own name over the door although i believe you haven't decided exactly what it's going to be called it's all top secret in terms of the the detail
3: yeah, I think there's, um, you know, we've still got a long way to go with that, um, with the restaurants. But we've got, uh, I think it's a natural progression, really, for for anyone is to, to actually have a, a solo restaurant that I actually own myself and and start something up, and really just to challenge myself as well. I, I feel that, you know, with all the years working, with Gordon at restaurant, Gordon Ramsay, it's been a phenomenal restaurant and it's been a great part of my life and but I've done so much there I, you know, I've achieved so much I feel that it's like really time to challenge myself and, and do something again something new
0: well we look forward to getting all the details about that whenever they they become available congratulations on your success today at Clare it's just been fantastic talking to you this evening and thank you, thank you so much for your time and I say the very best of luck with your new venture
3: Well, thank you
0: for having me. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to a second helpings edition of The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. So far on the show, we've heard from a wine guru and a three-star Michelin chef. Next, it's time to recall everything there is to know about pavlova with Palace Foods bakery and Pastry Specialist, Sheldon Chaplin. Cheers. Chin-chin.
2: Salut. Schleiter.
0: Sheldon Chaplin, what a great name. Where are you from, Sheldon?
2: I am from Australia, Sharon.
0: What brought you to Ireland?
2: Uh, My wife uh, is Irish. Uh, We actually met in Australia while she was on her year backpacking tour of the country. And... uh, what can you say? Things happen from there and, and here I am. She
0: enticed you back to the Emerald Isle. Yeah, she
2: brought something back in the suitcase, yeah.
0: Now, you're a pastry and bakery specialist, so you're well-placed to talk about Pavlova and even more so because you're from Australia, although I have read that there is a bit of an argument going on between Australia and New Zealand as to where it originated.
2: There is a big argument over this and we might even put this to bed today because it may turn out that neither one of us can claim the rights to it. Um, very similar respects to which nationality claims Russell Crowe when he's doing well he's Australian when he's doing poorly they can take him back but basically the origin of the Pavlova from the Australian New Zealand point of view comes from the Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova and no one seems to know whether she was dancing in Australia or New Zealand at the time but they know it was in the late 20s and the Pavlova she added her name to but recent research says that it may actually come from the USA really Uh, the USA uh, there is a A doctor at the moment, he's actually a New Zealander, his name is Andrew Wood, and he has been tracing the origins for two years, and he can categorically state the modern pavlova began in Germany and eventually made its way to the U.S. during the migration. And they have actually gone on to find 150 pavlova-based recipes that predate 1926, which is when Anna Pavlova was in Australia or New Zealand at the time.
0: Well, there you go now. And I wonder, does that doctor have to taste all these different pavlovas that, as, he, as he goes along and researches them?
2: Well, I believe he does, because there's over 150 pavlova-based recipes predating that time. And he is saying at the moment, the earliest one that he can find actually comes 15 years beforehand uh, in 1911. And it's actually classified as a strawberry pavlova, and it's called a dessert on the move. So it was a quick fix.
0: Well, if there's over 150 different ways to make it, then like there must be lots of ways for it to go wrong. I know in my personal experience, having only attempted to make it once many years ago, an experience never to be repeated because my dentist would just have to be paid a fortune.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> there are a few things that can go wrong. There is several variations, but there really is when you're kind of looking at the method that most people would use for their pavlova, which would be a French method, uh, which would be the standard Uh, one part egg white to two parts sugar. Eventually, if you're going to eat one every day, yes, you would be wearing dentures for the rest of your life, but they are very, very tasty. It's simple as that. But in in the making of pavlova, I I think the best thing I could say to to any of your listeners is that your bowl and equipment need to be clean. They don't necessarily need to be sterilized, but just even a lot of people, they'll see in their recipes, and they're adding in vinegar and things like this. If people have an objection to the vinegar, what I would suggest is they just use the vinegar on a piece of paper towel and actually wipe down their equipment before they start which will sterilise the equipment which will help the egg white form
0: Is a stainless steel bowl recommended over a crockery type bowl?
2: Yes, absolutely stainless steel is the number one choice, basically what happens is it doesn't matter how often you wash plastic, if you're whipping up your egg whites in a plastic bowl um, whatever you may have had in that bowl previously you may have had a chilli or something savoury or something that had a bit of grease in it that will eventually over time the grease will kind of adhere to that plastic. So you're never going to get rid of all the grease. So yes, stainless steel um, all the way if if you can get your hands on it.
0: Well, what's your preferred ingredient list? What do you like to use to make it?
2: My basic ingredients are only four, uh, which would be your caster sugar, your egg whites, a little bit of vinegar just to sterilize the equipment. I wouldn't actually add vinegar into my recipe. And um, it's a new ingredient which has been on the market a few years, which would... Compensate for the traditional kind of pre-war and post-war corn flour, uh, and that is xanthan gum.
0: What exactly is that, now?
2: Xanthan gum is a chemical additive, and it's been used recently um, in a lot of things. It's now used if you were in the shopping centre and you were looking at the back of your ingredients list, and you'd see it on the back of uh, mayonnaises. You'd see it on salad dressings. Uh, Basically what it is, it's a stabiliser, commonly used as a food thickening agent, but what it actually does, it it prevents your ingredients from separating. If you have ever looked at a pavlova after two or three days, you might notice a little bit of kind of like a really gloopy residue on the bottom of your plate or the bottom of your, your box. That is the mixture starting to separate. And basically what it is, it's the egg whites coming away from the sugar. This ingredient prevents that completely.
0: And what is it made from?
2: It's basically what it is, it's, it's a production, it's a fermentation of glucose, so it is a sugar-based derivative, uh, or lactose, and after a, a short fermentation period, um, they add it to a little bit of alcohol, and it's ground into a powder, and then it's added to a, a liquid to form a gum. So when you, if you were to buy it, and you can buy it in, um, if you were to go into places like Avoca, or kind of really kind of upmarket fruit and veg shops, it's made by a company that you can buy in a retail store called Dove's Farm, and they sell it in small kind of 200 gram jars. And it just looks like a fine white powder.
0: So there's nothing nasty
2: in there it? There is nothing nasty in it. It's, it's, it's glucose, which again is, is liquid sugar, which has literally been fermented and then ground down and added to a liquid.
0: So how many egg whites, how much sugar and um, how much of that do you use?
2: Uh, very, very little. Um, and I would basically break it down for if you were making a kilo mix of meringue, uh, you would literally use uh, about eight grams of this product. Okay. So very, very little. And what it actually does is it, it combines your ingredients together. It gives your meringue a beautiful marshmallowy texture, which I find the Irish market loves. Um, I would go out with a lot of Palace Foods customers and discover that a lot of people are moving towards the marshmallowy pavlova as opposed to the traditional kind of crunchy uh, base.
0: But would it not be crunchy on the outside and then the marshmallowy texture in the inside?
2: Absolutely. That's, that's the way that I find the Irish market are going. So it's got a very light, crisp crumb around the edge and around the top, and the inside it's just like a, a beautiful marshmallow.
0: So if I want to make then just a standard-sized pavlova, how many egg whites do I need? How much sugar do I need?
2: Uh, for a standard pavlova, I would say, uh, in, in rough terms, you would need about 250 grams of egg white, Um, So if you were looking at your your standard eggs, which is about 30 grams, you're looking at about eight of those to about 500 grams of sugar.
0: Just talk us through how it's made then. You whisk up the egg whites first.
2: Well, there'd be two different ways to do this, and I'll take you through the two different techniques. Uh, First would be for your meringue um, discs or your meringue nests, which a lot of people like to pipe. Um, That would be where you whisk up your egg whites first until you get that nice, glossy shiny luster on the egg white and then you would add your sugar in slowly in stages so you keep the volume in the egg white and then slowly but surely your mixture would start to thicken and again when you've added in your final egg or you sorry your final sugar um, you have a nice thick glossy egg white where if you actually were to put the the mixture above a light it would have a lovely sheen off it and then that mixture would be piped onto sheets um, into shapes into nests and that meringue would be put into an oven And this sort of meringue, which is the French method, which would be the most traditional, you would put in a very slow oven, only at about 80 to 100 degrees Celsius, because this sort of meringue is literally dried out. It's actually not baked. You'd leave it in there for a good three to six hours just to dry out, even overnight, if you wanted to turn your oven down to about 50 degrees, and then you'd come back, and then you would actually have a lovely white crisp meringue. And those sort of meringues would usually be finished with Fresh cream and like uh, coming into winter, a lovely winter berry compote. And again, you can change that with the season. Obviously, with me being from Australia, uh, with the, the much warmer weather, we would have passion fruit and kiwi and those sort of things. They're so versatile that you can serve it all year round and you can just change your fruits to suit the season.
0: Okay, fantastic. And then you have another technique, a different way to do it.
2: The other technique would be for the pavlova, if you actually want to make a pavlova cake that we were discussing there with the lovely marshmallowy centre. Now, this would be a bit different in the sense that instead of putting the egg white into the bowl on it, whipping it up to its full capacity before adding the sugar, you add the egg white and the sugar together at the beginning and you whip them up to a full peak on their own. Now, this technique takes a lot longer, but this is... Um, more for a a baking method where um, including the ingredient that we just spoke about that the xanthan gum right at the end will give that pavlova a beautiful marshmallowy texture in your hand you'll actually be able to feel it bouncing around in your hand so if you pop that into your cake tin and you actually bake that in an oven at about 130 degrees for about 40 minutes you'll get a lovely lift in your cake tin very similar to a sponge cake It'll start to rise very, very similar to what a sponge cake would. Leave it dry out for about 90 minutes to two hours and then turn the pavlova onto a cake tray. You'll find that you have that lovely crisp crust around the outside at the base and then when you cut through the pavlova, you'll have beautiful marshmallowy slices and all the slices will be consistent because the xanthan gum has binded the two ingredients together.
0: I, I've never heard of actually putting it into a cake tin. It's always been kind of spread out on a greaseproof paper.
2: Well, a lot of, a lot of uh, food service um, companies these days and a lot of customers would actually buy and can buy uh, completely undressed pavlovas in the shape of a cake. So instead of going out to buy the, the several discs and putting the cream in between the layers, and, and stacking the discs on top of one another, they can go out and buy a complete cake, uh, which would look like just a, you know, a basic chocolate cake or a basic sponge, a full circular cake, and they can take that home and they can decorate that with their fresh cream and berries and they can serve it on, on their you know celebration day or whatever kind of event they're choosing to have at the time.
0: Well, if you are very accomplished at doing the meringue BS you can actually turn it into a roulette.
2: <laughs> That is correct. Uh, and again, these, these techniques uh, are getting more and more popular and the Irish market at the moment uh, love the roulade. They're very, very popular within our business. The The same process for the roulade is exactly the same as the pavlova cake. You would get yourself a tray with a piece of paper and you would spread the meringue mix out on the rectangular sheet. But in this circumstance, you would actually bake the meringue very, very quickly. You'd bake it for about six minutes at 200 degrees so it literally just has enough time to get the the crispy outside you'd let that cool down and then you put on your cream and your compote and you would roll it very very similar to the way that you'd see a swiss roll in the stores very very same technique but with meringue
0: Fantastic. Like, sadly, we have a lot of interference on the line there, Sheldon, so hopefully people did get all the details. If not, you might send me on the recipes and everything that you have there, and I can put them up on Facebook and Twitter for people to get. Absolutely. And thanks so much for talking to us about it tonight. I still like to think that it is named after Anna Pavlova, the ballerina, because I had read that the shape of the meringue, and it, it was actually to mirror the the tutu that she wore as a ballerina. That is
2: correct, and I think in in the, the sense of that story, because that story that will never change, no matter what research is done or if they find that it did originate in Germany and flock to the US, that story will remain.
0: Fantastic, Sheldon. Great to talk to you this evening.
2: Thanks, Sharon. Pleasure.
0: You're listening to the best possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to a second helping edition of The Best Possible Taste with me, Sharon Noonan. Pavlova, Sparkling Wine and three Michelin stars have all featured on the show so far and we've one interview left. Food journalist Dee Laffin has been a regular guest on the show and one topic that she is particularly passionate about is food waste.
1: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
0: Delicious. Mmm. Dee, you're on the committee of Slow Food Dublin and you chose food waste as it's kind of like a campaign for 2015 to raise awareness. Why did you choose that particular topic?
4: The chairman of uh, Slow Food Dublin, Bill Gunter, he suggested it to us and we just wanted to pick a theme every year that we can just raise some awareness around and if we can raise maybe some funds for a charity or something like that. So, he had thought of it because he had seen a documentary called Just Edith which was made in the US. Bill and his wife Sharon are from the US and they had seen it and and read about it and they just we I mean as soon as he mentioned it to to the rest of the committee members we were all on board because when you actually look into it it is a I want to use a better word than fascinating but it is a, it is a topic that we really do need to raise awareness for both Globally, but also here in Ireland, you'd be shocked how much food we're wasting, Sharon. It's incredible. Just to give you some statistics, there is 1.3 billion tons of food annually being wasted, and that's on a global basis. And to put that into kind of perspective, there are 1.3 billion people going hungry every day. So, I mean, it completely confuses you to kind of even think about that sentence, you know, because it's Right, so one billion tons are being uh, thrown away and 1.3 billion people are being hungry. Like, you know, it just makes no sense whatsoever. And the cost that is involved with food waste as well, if we're producing food, I mean, when you think about it, what goes into producing food? You know, you're using energy, you're using water, you're using resources, you're employing people. And if that food is packaged and, and sold in a supermarket and you bring it home and then you let it go off in your fridge or or you just chuck it in the bin because it's gone past an expiry date, and that's just we're failing, you know that's a failure, we're failing all around. I know there's a certain amount of food waste that will always will always happen, but we should be conscious of how much food we're wasting and trying to look at reducing it um, ourselves. They think on average in in Ireland, they think on average is about 80 kilos per person that that's the average annually that we're throwing in the bin about a third of, of what we're buying we throw away so again to put it into perspective to use the kind of an a analogy like if you go shopping and and you bring home your groceries and you put them all on the dining room table and then put them into three bundles and just chuck one of those bundles in the bin that in reality is what we are doing on average
0: i think they are very scary and very startling figures and certainly the 1.3 billion tons worldwide whenever there's 1.3 billion people that could avail of that of course sadly that's not the way that the world works and i think people when they think about food waste they think yeah okay i'm wasting money here but it's so much more than that would you have highlighted there
4: yeah and also like you know it's a real problem you know it's costing irish householders about 700 euros each year despite like you know more brown bins being been put out around the country and the brown bins are the ones that you can put food waste into there's still you know landfills most most of our food waste is going into a landfill and it's just the environmental impact of that because also the other thing is that food when it decomposes you know like you know the way if you ever ate an apple and your parents used to say to you oh it's okay to kind of throw that into the bushes because it'll it'll degrade down and it's fine and that is okay because it's not covered or anything but if you take food that's in a plastic bag or that's in a bin and you bring it to a landfill and it's covered over when food um, decomposes and it's covered all the gases that it produces are called they're called methane and methane is a massive, massive factor in greenhouse gas, in climate change. And that's one of food waste is actually causing and adding a massive factor in climate change. And And I just think people don't realize that. This documentary that I mentioned earlier, Just Eat It, um, we actually had a showing of it there a couple of weeks ago in Dublin, and we had a good crowd for it, and everybody just was, aghast at the end of it and i think it needs to be watched by as many people as possible i'd love to get it shown in schools and just to get people thinking maybe do some projects around it you know that sort of way and just to get show people um not only the amount of food being wasted but but also how some of that food can be rescued um i've been doing some work with voice ireland who are an environmental uh charity and they have a campaign called Food Rescue, and they hold events around the country where they cook food for people from rescued food. Now, we're not talking about digging in your bins and pulling out gone-off bananas and things like that. We're talking about in a supermarket or in a, in a market, they're not able to display or sell goods after a certain point because of health and safety laws here and regulations in this country and the, the date expiration date uh, legislation but there's nothing wrong with some of the food that's been thrown out it's perfectly good so we we kind of held a few events and they've been holding them i got involved in a few where we kind of rescued some food and then we cooked perfectly good dinners out of it and served them to people just to show them you know what you can make out of this food and you know so if it is a carrot that's gone a bit bendy gone a bit kind of um tid looking that you can you know you still can use that for specific dishes like maybe you know if you're making a soup or something you're not going to notice if that carrot wasn't at its best you know wasn't that its, it's it's freshest uh, we've been working with them and we're doing a lot of stuff on that the other thing is as well And there's just one other thing as well, just on that, is our own perception, customers' perceptions of what food should be like, our our demands in the supermarket. Um, It's almost like a vicious circle. If we go into a supermarket, the supermarkets have purposely made their fruit and veg sections look as attractive and colorful and fresh as they can be. They don't want fruit or veg there that is slightly wilted, slightly unfresh. So that will get pulled off the uh, shelves and replaced with fresh fresher produce and as a consumer because that's the way that supermarkets operate we then go in and we expect to see fruit and veg as fresh as possible we are reaching for the bananas that are completely yellow and look perfect rather than the ones if there's any black marks on them people will not go for them or most people won't anyway, I don't want to generalise. And I just think we need to kind of really work on changing that and changing our perceptions of how fruit and vegetables and fresh foods should be. Um, so that's a, that's a massive issue. Another part of that is as I was mentioned already, the legislation around expiration dates. In this country, uh, we have a lot of different expiration dates, and I'd say a lot of people don't know the difference. So you've got display until, you've got sell by, you've got use by, um, and you've got best before. Um, The only one that a consumer needs to be concerned about is the use by date. The use by date is actually a date that's mostly added to perishable goods like dairy or meat and it is a date that will highlight when that when that uh, you should use that product by uh, in terms of health not health and safety there's actually no legislation around that but just in terms of when it is a very definite guideline is what i'm trying to say is when you should use it by the others sell by and display by are actually stock control dates that are just for the supermarket and we should not pay any attention to them in fact they shouldn't really have them on there because they're just confusing. They should have them as codes or barcodes or something that they can use, but that's really just for stock control. And then the other one, best before, is supposed to be for the consumer, but it's really just a guideline. It's not even, there's no regulation behind it and it doesn't actually mean anything. There's really no, you know, like, it's not like you if something has a best before date and it's gone past that, that that means there's any sort of health risk or anything like that. So we really need to pay attention to that, that it's only the use by date that you should look at. And also, even with the use by date, I really would kind of, if people like families are trying to save money and they go out and they spend lots of money on meat and veg and and groceries, and then something reaches its use by date. I mean, I think we need to really kind of listen to our our senses and smell and uh, look at the appearance of meat and and dairy, and I mean, you know, if you open up a carton of milk, or if we've often poured it into your cup of tea or coffee, if it's gone off, you'll you'll know about it. You know that sort of way. Absolutely. So, yeah. so if so, if a carton of milk reaches its use by date, and then you go to it two days later, or even just the next day, I mean, if there's some milk left, nine times out of ten, or higher than that, ten times out of ten, that milk is going to be absolutely fine. So why pour that down the sink? Why? Why waste that? And I know some people are very, very particular. They won't take the risk, as they see it, of get, getting sick. Sorry, from it or some sort of poisoning. But it's not like that. I mean, even with meat or eggs is another one. I mean, I'm which is another reason why I'm very passionate about this topic. Is I grew up in a household where my dad didn't really pay attention to kind of expiration dates to a certain extent on you know things like meat and that. We were very careful, but he always kind of he, we couldn't afford to waste the money, so. You know he always kind of said with milk and everything just and um, with eggs you know let's just try them let's let's smell them let's you know what i mean mm-hmm. and, and with eggs there's a very simple test if you put an egg in a glass of water if it sinks it's good and if it floats it's gone off so so that's a very simple test you can do with eggs um the same can be and like i said then smelling and the appearance of of something you'll know if it's gone off with fruit and veg Like with bananas, sometimes the skin goes off quicker than the the fruit on the inside. So, you know, you need to peel them, you need to check it out. And there's nothing wrong with some of that black fruit. I know some people don't like it, kids and stuff, but that's all perception.
0: So I agree with you there and sorry to, to cut across you there. No, but you're fine. Sid Sheehan, who is a chef nutritionist that often would be on the show, he has talked in depth before about the bananas and about the black parts of it are actually very good for you and to use yes. them in smoothies and and not to, to just put them in the bin. And I'm sure you have other tips that you could pass on to people about foods so that they don't yeah. put them into the bin. Now, you've you've mentioned the test there for the eggs, which is, is very yeah. good. What other tips would you have?
4: As I was saying it's one point three billion tonnes globally, but it's three hundred thousand tons in Ireland that is going to waste, and there are three different types of food waste: sixty percent is avoidable food waste, and that includes like your place scrappings, your leftovers, gone off fruit and veg, and past its date perishables, which I've already touched on so just something on that there leftovers a tip for that is. If you have leftovers, and we have, some people are very good at kind of if they make too much bolognese or or chili or stew or whatever, you put it in a Tupperware sealed container and you put it in the fridge or freezer. Now, a freezer is a great tool for not wasting food. If you're not going to use something, you know, stick it in the freezer and then you can use it at a later date. You can freeze so many foods, and fruit and veg as well. But if you do have leftovers and you put them in a Tupperware box or container and you put them in the fridge, make sure that container is see-through because there's been tests on the prove if you have pink or blue or something like that and you can't actually see into the box, what you can't see, you will forget about. So when you look in the fridge and you go, "Oh, what's in there? What will I eat? I know it sounds silly Sharon, but actually if there's food in a tub or a box, you know, out of sight, out of mind, you just won't know that it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so make sure you can see the food, like wrap it in cling film. As I was saying on freezing as well, you know, there are a lot of things you can freeze. You can chop up veg, you can chop up fruit before you use it. If you, if you buy a bag of carrots and you're not going to use them all that week um, and you're away the following week or something, but you want to use them for um, a stew that night, chop up the rest of them and put them in, some freezer bags and put them in the in the freezer and you can then you know pop them into something later i mentioned the the first type of food waste is avoidable food waste the second one is um potentially avoidable food waste and 20 percent of that is wasted not things like bread crust and potato skins and these are often down to habits you know like we peel potatoes and we throw the skins in the bin or we um, throw, we cut off bread crusts their so our kids won't eat them or, the, or it's gone a bit stale. But we all know that stale bread makes brilliant breadcrumbs or stuffing or things like that. So, And you can freeze breadcrumbs as well. And potato skins, I mean, there are so many things you can make with potato skins, not to mention just stuffing the potato skin or putting some nice cheese or bacon on it and grilling it is a really nice thing. So looking at avoidable food waste as well. And then the last 20% is unavoidable food waste. And that's things like chicken bones, banana skins and peelings. Again, actually some of those items, even though it says unavoidable, they actually can be used. I mean, we all know, we've all been making stock for years. If you do a roast chicken one night and you have the leftovers for lunch, for uh, sandwiches the next day, and then you're left with the carcass with a tiny bit of meat on that or something. I mean, you can boil that up in water to make the most beautiful stock that can be used just as a soup, or you can use the stock in numerous amounts of dishes as well. And then what's left of those bones will be very minimal that you can throw in the bin. And the other one is banana skins and peelings. There are actually lots of recipes online. If you look for them, you will find recipes for banana skins and things like that. Uh, And just to finish off, really, one of the reasons I've been trying to, and a, a big reason that I think people will be very interested in trying to reduce their food waste bill, is because the bin charges in Ireland are going to change at the end of this year. So it'll be very much in people's interest to not have a very heavy food bin. As well, to reduce your food waste is to look at what you're going to cook for the week, you know, to make a simple menu plan and then do your shopping list up from that. And look at your shopping list, because I know I've done it before as well. Say I want to make something very uh, popular like spaghetti bolognese. So you buy a packet of spaghetti, a packet of mushrooms, a packet of mince, some onions, a tin of tomatoes and some tomato puree. Say so you had to buy all those things, um, you you know, and, and, a, and a bulb of garlic, you need to look at then, okay, I'm going to use all of the mince and the onions and, and some of the mushrooms in that and half the packet of spaghetti, but how can I save the rest of that food and either use it in something else for the rest of the week that I want to cook, or if not, how am I going to store it so that it doesn't go off so that that spaghetti doesn't go off until the following week when you make it again? or make up more of it and then store it and, and reheat, you know, that sort of way. So it's kind of thinking about your your menu plan and thinking about your shopping list and not going out to a supermarket and just buying on impulse because there'll be loads of marketing and buy, buy one, get one free and all this sort of stuff out there in the supermarket to encourage us to buy more food. So what we need to do is have a very clear idea of what we want when we go into the shop. And then that way we, you actually save so much money but also we're saving food as well.
0: Now, we're nearly out of time, Dee, but just before you go, any websites that you can direct people to that would be useful?
4: Absolutely, Um, there are two. Um, The Voice Ireland environmental charity that I mentioned, they have a website called voiceireland.org, that's O-R-G, that's voiceireland.org. And the second one is very simple, it's stopfoodwaste.ie. And um, they both have lots of tips, lots of statistics and things on there um, that you can look up and print off, um, like simple uh, ways to track your food waste, to menu plan, things like that. Loads of information on those sites for people.
0: Fantastic, Dee. Great to talk to you tonight and continued success with the campaign.
4: Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Cheers. Chin chin.
2: Salut. Schleunter.
0: That brings us to the end of this second helping show of Best Possible Taste. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the Best Possible Taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit. Thank you.